All right, Mickey here with an advert for BetterHelp Therapy Online. You all right? Such a small question and sometimes such a big question too, eh? Now, regular listeners will know I am no stranger to depression and while over time and with the help of some decent counselling and brilliant friends and family, I've established a toolkit to help when the constantly dripping tap of life gets a bit too much. That does not mean I am a stress-free human rainbow skipping through meadows. I mean, who is? We all carry around different stresses, big and small, and sometimes we can deal, and sometimes it's much harder to cope. Life, innit? Right now, I have a teenage puppy to deal with, and although I love her very, very much, she can be a lot. There, said it. And as quick a fix as it seems to say, I'm fine, I'm fine, and push it all down into the big inside box and put that lid on. For me, that hasn't been a great long-term solution in that if I don't get it off my chest, it will at some point come bubbling up and it's never been one to pick its moments in a good way. I find talking means I can avoid it exploding out of me like a messy emotional volcano all over my nana's carpet. Also, during my various times in talk therapy, I discovered that saying something out loud or writing it down can make it seem much more manageable than allowing it to swirl around and grow ever bigger in my head. If you're thinking of starting therapy, Give BetterHelp a try. I've found knowing how to reach out is sometimes the toughest bit, but BetterHelp is entirely online. Boom. Which means it couldn't be easier. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a registered therapist, then work your sessions around your schedule. With more than a thousand therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Standard issue listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash standard. That's betterhelp.com slash standard. What does Colgate mean by live life to the brightest? Could it be a rich glass of red sipped inside a Parisian cafe on a snowy night when my gaze is met by a tall, mysterious... I mean, brushing is directed with Colgate Optic White Pro Series Toothpaste gives you a visibly whiter smile in just three days so you can live life to the brightest and finish that glass without worrying about teeth stains. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. Standard Issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 116 of the Standard Issue Podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and I am literally doing press-ups while we record this. Hannah, Hannah, did you hear me counting? I've done more than 100. Did you hear how many I did? 100? More than 100, like 200, maybe even four. I don't know, there was loads of them. My arms hurt and I've never felt more virile. Meow. <laughs> Jonah Bruce. Thanks. I'm Hannah Dunleavy and I am 73% sweat. I mean, not so much today, actually. But I've had it with this hot weather. I had to buy a second fan. A second fan. And you were hugging it and calling it your best friend within minutes of it arriving. In my head, so I don't want you to spoil this, but you've painted like a face on the fan and you're having... It's your Wilson. She's nodding. Listeners can't hear that. I'm sorry. Yeah, they can't hear. I'm sorry. What a fucking donkey I am. (laughs) Later on, I chat to award-winning journalist and editor-in-chief of Empire magazine, Terry White, about her memoir, Coming Undone, It is an extraordinary book dealing with poverty, child abuse, alcoholism and mental breakdown. And it's got some lols. (laughs) Well done, that woman. I talked to writer and disability activist Jim Turner about shielding, 
whether she feels ready to go back into the real world and what the last few months have taught her about how this government views disabled people. Time travelling Jenny's here again. I mean, it's as if she never left to have a baby, although her nethers would absolutely tell you differently. Uh, yeah. This time she's chatting to the awesome, and I mean that in the most literal meaning of the word, Joe Pavey, about being an Olympian and exercising the kids during lockdown. Joe Pavey is, I think, approximately the same age as me, which makes me feel ashamed. But you are doing the Olympics next year, aren't you, Anna? Yeah, I mean, it's free for all, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And in Dunleavy Does Disaster, I think we're probably going to be sticking up for rats, aren't we? As we watch 1996's Daylight. Which they wouldn't have seen if it wasn't for the rats. But first, Thrones of Labour, CPS failings and Mary Jackson HQ. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Stink. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, where we comb through the detritus like it's Bournemouth Beach. I can't believe we have to say this, but take your shit home with you people, which means you're rubbish and, in some cases, you're literal shit. I cannot look at a photo of Bournemouth without having to wash my hands now. It's just awful. And not just Bournemouth, Clapham Common is all over the place. It's happening now. So, I'll tell you one good thing about a pandemic. It don't have detract from the continuing battle for the soul of the Labour Party. What are we on now? Book five? Labour Wars, the Battle of Peak Tweet. The story picks up a few weeks after Sakir of Starmer <laughs> was crowned at the end of the last book and kicks off with the sacking of Shadow Education Secretary Rebecca Long, sorry, Long Bailey after she tweeted an article in The Independent by actress and staunch Labour supporter Maxine Peak. In it, Peak made a claim, and I will go into that later, that many believed anti-Semitic. And having pledged to deal with anti-Semitism when he was elected and unsatisfied with Long Bailey's subsequent response, Sakir took action. Case closed, right? Well, it seems like that would be. (laughs) (laughs) Before I continue, I should make a few things clear for anyone who hasn't read the first four books. (laughs) Number one, up until last week, I had no issue at all with Maxine Peake. In fact, I once drove to Manchester to see a play that she'd written. You did? Number two, I voted Labour in the last election. Can confirm. Number three, I voted for Sakira Starmer to lead the Labour Party. You certainly did. Number four, I'm often told by people that they don't have a sexist bone in their body immediately before, after, or sometimes even during an (laughs) act of gross sexism. I'm therefore inclined to defer to Jewish people on what is or isn't anti-Semitic especially if it comes with a clear explanation, rather than, say, a blue-tick journalist. And while I'm on that, if you're telling white people to listen to non-white people about what constitutes racism, while not listening to Jews, you're indulging in exactly the same one-rule-for-me behaviour that you're criticising the Tories for. So, in the article, Peake was quoted as saying, Systemic racism is a global issue. The tactics used by police in America kneeling on George Floyd's neck, that was learned from seminars with Israeli secret services. The Independent, which has since removed the quote from the piece, had made a half-assed attempt to fact-check this claim, concluding that a report by Amnesty backed it up. Not so, said Amnesty, who asked the Independent to make that clear, leading Peak to apologise. So now it's case closed, right? Yeah. Ah, you naive fool. Of course it's not. (laughs) Because like it or not, anti-Semitism remains rife in the left. 
The usual suspects, and by that I mean Owen Jones, Ash Sarkar and Kerry Ann Mendoza, all lined up to call the sacking an overreaction. Because, I strongly suspect, they are more keen to have people they agree with in the shadow cabinet than they are to have a Labour Party free of anti-Semitism. All three might claim to be anti-racist as fuck, but if you take a read through the comments under their tweets, the veneer of civilization is very thin, if it exists at all. Mm. And personally, if my tweets attracted the kind of conspiracy cranks that theirs do, I'd have a long, hard think about what my audience said about me. Yeah. So, to be totally, emphatically clear, if you are one of those people saying... So now we can't even call out human rights abuses without being called anti-Semitic. You are wrong. It is possible to raise objections to, for example, Israel's plans to annex up to a third of the West Bank without linking it to a worldwide Jewish conspiracy. It's possible, and given the fucking shambles that is our (laughs) government right now, I cannot stress this enough, to separate a whole country from those in charge of it. In fact, Lisa Nandy did that this weekend in The Guardian. Give it a read. And that's why it's important to call out anti-Semitism when you see it, particularly when it's dressed up as concern for Palestine. Because if there's ever going to be a solution, which rightly seems unlikely, but I can remember a time when the same was said of Northern Ireland, we cannot allow people like fucking Mendoza to dominate the debate. Well said. It's never going to end, is it? What an absolute sewer. Yeah. So I'm not going to make it any cheerier, I'm afraid. Uh, Oh. Soz. Last year, there were almost 60,000 reports of rape to the police, but less than 1,800 men were charged, and that resulted in less than 1,000 convictions. I mean, I'm not great at maths, but that seems, well, shit. Yeah. Let me get my calculator out. (laughs) Yeah. Shit. Unsurprisingly, I'm not the only one to think that and somehow managing to put it much more eloquently than yelling, this is bullshit! Leading women's organisations in the coalition End Violence Against Women, EVAW, have delivered a stack of powerful evidence of Crown Prosecution Service's failure on rape to Secretary of State for Justice Robert Buckland. Now, Buckland is currently overseeing an end-to-end review of the police, CPS and court's performance on rape with a view to making recommendations for change. This review was commissioned in March 2019 when it became clear that prosecutions were in free fall. In fact, the CPS and Ministry of Justice's own figures show that between 2014 and 2019, rapes reported to the police nearly tripled. They were up by 173%. Yet the number of cases charged and sent to court is down by 51% across those five years, which makes it the lowest on record. So the evidence that is being put forward by EVAW includes, and this is by no means an exhaustive list, the detailed statement of a CPS whistleblower, which sets out how the CPS secretly chose to change their policy on charging rape cases and the resulting catastrophic collapse in charging, and a dossier of 20 women's rape cases, which the CPS decided not to charge. These feature a woman held at knife point, a woman whose rape was filmed and the video was found on the suspect's phone, and another where the CPS gave the fact that the survivor had, quote, enjoyed an adventurous sex life as a reason not to charge. Fucking hell. Harriet Wistrich, director of the Centre for Women's Justice, said, The extensive evidence we have assembled for the judicial review demands careful scrutiny. We have no doubt that it shows that the CPS have changed their approach to reduce the number of rape prosecutions being brought. 
We continue to be inundated with inquiries from rape victims who have been told by the CPS that their cases will not be prosecuted, despite compelling evidence and the risk that dangerous men will feel free to offend again. The judicial review brought by EVAW against the CPS for their failure to prosecute rape was initiated in June 2019 and a permission hearing took place on March 17, 2020. Now, permission for a full hearing was not granted and EVAW are currently awaiting a date for the appeal hearing, so we will keep you posted. But you can also keep an eye on the website endviolenceagainstwomen.org.uk, which also has more details on all of that evidence I mentioned earlier. We had some other sad news, didn't we? On a slightly more personal front, Mickey, this week. We do have some sad news. So you may remember from a couple of podcasts where we spoke to the brilliant Simon Thompson, who had stage four cancer. And she was a brilliant, brave, bold force of nature who spoke really openly and articulately about what was happening to her, what she was scared of, what she was joyful for. And sadly, Simon has died. What a woman. She was incredible. Yeah, she was. We don't like the language of fighting, do we, when you talk about cancer. But she she had a lot of energy in her. But also she wasn't afraid of dying, which I don't think I'd ever met anyone like who wasn't afraid of dying before now. Or certainly not someone of her age who wasn't afraid of dying. Yeah, she was really young. Do you want a bit of good news? Oh, fuck yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, your wish... My friend is my command. I'm going to hold you to that forevermore. (laughs) Last week, NASA announced that it was renaming its Washington, D.C.-based headquarters after Mary Jackson, an engineer central to the success of the U.S. space program and one of three African-American women who inspired the Oscar-nominated film Hidden Figures. If you've seen that and you're trying to place her, she was played by Janelle Monae. Jackson's daughter... There were quotes from the head of NASA, but I thought I'd go with another woman. Yay! Jackson's daughter, Carolyn Lewis, said in response to the news, she was a scientist, humanitarian, wife, mother and trailblazer who paved the way for thousands of others to succeed, not only at NASA, but throughout this nation. Mary Jackson HQ for the win. Love it. Yeah. And some good news for me too. Can't believe it. That's crazy. I am having to head over to New Zealand for mine. Virtually, of course, because we have seen the coronavirus mess Brits can cause if we actually (laughs) go over there. So yeah, Kiwi supermarket chain Countdown has ditched the usual euphemistic terms surrounding period products. You know, feminine hygiene, intimate hygiene, sanitary, lady mops for the blue bleeders. And will instead (laughs) be calling them period products. So what, you might think? Big deal. Except this makes Countdown the first retail chain in the world to call a period a period. Wowzers. The idea behind the move is that it will go some way to changing the still-held view that periods are dirty or unhygienic, rather than something that naturally happened to pretty much most female bodies once a month for a good few decades. Sarah Mickelson, a co-founder of New Zealand charity The Period Place, said... It's so political at the moment, taking a hardline approach around language. So to see a big brand jump on a train that they haven't really even been asked to jump onto is very cool, very inspiring. Well done, Countdown. (laughs) More news next time. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where I offer you some good news about a brilliant woman, but it's grounded in sexism so we don't get above ourselves. Got to know our place like, haven't we women? 
Indeed. Even if that place is an unmarked grave in Tunbridge Wells, which is where Rachel Sassoon Beer has been mouldering for 93 years. I mean, that name alone should have granted her some sort of fancy-schmancy stone angel, right? Yeah. So who was she? Rachel Sassoon Beer was a feminist pioneer in Fleet Street, only the second female editor of a national newspaper in Britain. And actually, she edited two rival titles, The Observer and The Sunday Times, during the same period in the 1890s. That was a time when women didn't even have the vote. Bad ass. Also under her watch, the liberal-leaning observer ran a huge scoop in 1898, which revealed that documents used to convict French army officer Alfred Dreyfus four years earlier of spying for Germany were actually a forgery. So why was she forgotten? Well, she didn't have kids, and while her nephew mm. Siegfried Sassoon, yep, the war poet, fondly recalled childhood tea parties in his memoirs, he latterly just seemed to want her to die so he could get his inheritance. Also, Rachel was a Jew who converted to Anglicanism when she married Frederick Beer, which led to an irrevocable rift with her family, apart from her brother Alfred, who himself had been cut off for marrying a non-Jew. And yet her family stepped in and didn't allow Rachel to be interred in the Beer family mausoleum in Highgate Cemetery, and so she wound up buried in unconsecrated ground after her death in 1927. So a big well done to former journalist and author Anne Treneman on her successful campaign to have Rachel Sassoon Beer's resting place properly marked. Oh, and it is worth noting that after Beer, it was 80 years before Britain had another long-serving female editor of a national newspaper. Mary Howarth was the launch editor of the Daily Mirror in 1903 for a week. Hello there, listener. Jen here to ask you a little favour, if I may. If you're not doing so already, you can follow us on all of the social medias. Well, not all of them, because we're old and we don't know what all of them do. But on Twitter, we are at Standard Issue UK. On Facebook, we are Standard Issue Magazine. And on Instagram, where it would be particularly helpful if you would follow us, we are at Standard Issue Podcast. Also on Twitter, you will find me at Inspiragen, Mickey at Mixter Noonan, and Hannah at That Dunleavy. Ah, go on, give us a follow. Hi, Hannah here. I am joined on the phone by writer and disability activist Jem Turner. Hello, Jem. Thanks for joining us. Hello. You have been shielding. Yeah. Now, I'm not sure everybody is up to scratch on what shielding actually involves, so maybe you could talk us through what you've been doing in the last three months to make sure that you are safe. When this all started, and obviously we, we didn't really quite know what the virus was, Really, we just knew that this thing was happening, people were getting ill. And for any disabled people out there, we're probably a little bit used to protecting ourselves anyway. So I think straight away we were like, right. So to put it into context, I'm three foot one, I'm a small person, and if I get a chest infection, it's, you know, it's very important that I make sure that it's treated straight away. I've been hospitalised before with chest infections. So yeah, I suppose shielding really is just knowing that your condition means that it's fatal if you do get any kind of virus. So you have been inside, essentially, since March. Yeah, so I actually, controversially, haven't even had a letter, which is, I think, shocking. An official letter, you mean? An official letter from the government, yeah. I have totally had to rely on the charity Brittle Bones Society. If it wasn't for them, I would absolutely not know what to do at all. And that's the problem when you've got a rare condition, 
is that it's totally on you to support yourself. There's no support to make sure you're, you're doing the right thing. And I still don't know if I'm doing the right thing, if I'm honest. I'm just going by what Brittle Bone Society have said, which is if you've got a small chest cavity, then you are less likely to be able to recover from a serious virus. So you are living with other people. Yes. Have they had to shield as well in order to protect you? So I'd say this has been the hardest thing is that I do live with family. I live with my mum, dad and my brother. And my dad works in a factory. Originally, we all locked down. It was really, if I'm being really honest, it was better because I felt like, oh, we've all got to stay in. There's no drama, you know. The bit before it, I felt like I was going a bit mad because I felt like, you know, I I really felt like, oh, God, this is going to be a thing. I can feel it. And everybody else was just doing their own business. And it felt like, you know, you were on your own thinking, this is going to be a thing. Yeah. So when lockdown happened, I was a bit like, oh, well, at least we can all chill a little bit and, you know, just see how this goes. I would imagine that in some instances, people have had to go back to work. Imagine that. It's your own family. Yeah. And you're conscious of your own family. It's just it's something that you never prepare. And I literally can't imagine. What's it been like for you? Have you learned anything sort of about yourself during that time? I've been thinking about this a lot and I think if there was any positives, I would say that I've been able to really understand my body and how I work best because I've not had to comply to the society of, you know, you must be busy all the time yeah. and to be active is to be successful and, you know, I've not had to be up and about for anything. I could just get up and get dressed an hour later if I wanted to. So in that sense, it's been really nice to just not have, you know, that constant... Because I always push myself because I want to prove to people that I'm not what stereotypical people think of disabled people, which is ableist in itself. Yeah. I've been ridiculous myself. But on the other hand, it's it's just been really difficult. And if I'm honest, it, it, it's even tested how I interact with the people closest to me because we've all had our own opinions we've all dealt with it in different ways so it's been really testing and there's been times where I've just absolutely broke down because somebody's not washed their hands and that's it it just drives you to another level doesn't it yeah now the government seems to think that it's okay that disabled people can stop shielding now how confident are you that that is the case and are you going to do it? To be honest, I don't trust the government one bit. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> um, to say that, you know, we could look at shiny new cars before seeing people that we love, yeah. I just think is absolutely ridiculous. It's really tough because it's been so long that you kind of think, well, there's not a vaccine at the moment. How long are we going to wait for this vaccine? So I'm kind of like, it would be lovely to see friends. And personally for me, I think I'll start socially distant, you know, seeing people really far away because mentally I've got to try and start. At some point you have to, to yeah. Yeah, because, you know, we'll never be 100% sure. And I know that friends will disagree, they'll carry on what they're doing. And I think you've just got to do what you believe is right for you, but... Personally, I am such an extrovert that 
I cannot imagine life staying indoors for however long. I think it's damaging in the other sense. For your mental health? I was thinking the other day about I went to Boots in the winter and, you know, when someone says, oh, how are you doing? And I said, I'm all right, I'm a bit tired. I think I'm low on vitamin D. And I, I started going on about <laughs> how I actually feel. And I was like, that is what I miss, the small talk of every yeah. day. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I've got to try and get back to it somehow. I was saying the other day, I really miss just seeing things that I haven't seen before. You know, just whether it be that you look out of a train window and you're like, oh, look, there's a deer going through that field or just something. All I see is my house <laughs> yeah. and now my mum's house because I can enter her bubble because I live by myself and the road between our houses and the places I walk around the estate that I live on. That's it. My eyes are really craving just something, something different. How does ending shielding affect your rights? And by that I mean, for example, you work, don't you? Yeah. You're in a situation where uh, presumably you can work from home. Yeah. Do you have concerns that disabled people are going to be forced back outside into the community when they're not ready for it yet by these rule changes? Yeah, definitely. I think uh, this whole rhetoric at the moment of shielders can go back to a work in August, just talk to your employer and, you know, make sure it's safe. And that's the constant thing that I've been worried about is that it's all on the individual. There's no help, um, you know, to, to protect us. We're, we're having to make choices about health versus money and living. And it it's really stressful every day to constantly think about the options that you've got. Mm. You know, I do face-to-face training. That's that's my day-to-day job at the moment. And I'm really lucky that I can do it online. But it's not the same. It's not, you know, and it, it's not what I want long-term. I want to be able to go out and, and speak to people. So I think rights-wise, we're constantly having to fight for ourselves. There's no one really in our corner, apart from allies, obviously. But I've just felt this massive divide, if I'm really honest, between people who are, quote, healthy and people who are shielding. And and it, and it does feel like when it all comes down to it, there's going to be a definitely two group situation. I mean, I think you're absolutely correct because I've been watching really closely who the government mentioned. Because yeah. as someone who's been living by myself, we were not mentioned once during that entire, not once did people say, for people living by themselves, maybe you can do this or maybe, nothing. No help with mental health for people who are living by themselves. So I also noticed during that time that disabled people were not mentioned, let's say at all in the time that I was watching, not mentioned at all. And where I feel that the last few months have been a, a reminder of the regard in which society holds women um, or people that live by themselves and aren't married and don't have children. I can only assume that yeah. you've come to the conclusion that this has been a reminder of how society views disabled people. Absolutely, yeah. And I've noticed that as well about people living on their own. It was so late, wasn't it? Yeah. Basically, the first time they mentioned it, they said, oh, you can, it's when we could join somebody else's bubble. That's the only time. The word in that the government I've noticed to use them is like elderly. That's the yeah. term for what they think of people shielding. And they've never once said young disabled people. You know, they've never, 
they've never thought about us who are, you know, born disabled and, and have the same sort of situations as what they deem as the elderly. I think it's definitely the government, but I do think there's a wider issue of when we think about people who are vulnerable, which we don't, I don't like the word vulnerable because it's the situation that we're put in that makes us vulnerable. It's not us as people, it's, again, it's about the lack of support that we're given rather than who we are. I just think we never really thought about until we have to shout about it. I mean, the way that we found out that shielding was over is through a press release through BBC. So it wasn't even, yeah. you know, an actual announcement, yeah. uh, like the everyday thing. So 10 o'clock in the evening, we were like, hold on a minute, we're about to go out now. Who, who, who's saying that? It's funny that, because that day that that happened, I'd seen you tweet earlier in the day something like, still no news on shielding people, maybe we can just open the window or something. And you had yeah. tweeted that. And then suddenly Twitter said, oh, actually, by the way, you can go out. I'll tell you what else I was thinking about disabled people, and again, you'll be able to tell me whether um, I'm right or not. For the, for the most part, disabled people have been inside, you know, for the last three months. And able-bodied people are not the most considerate of disabled people a lot of the time. And in the last few months, we've all, and by we, I don't actually mean me, but let's say we for the sake of it, we've all been parking in your spaces by the door, yeah. And we've been working out how to socially distance on pavements and people are going to have to learn to reaccommodate disabled people in their lives again, aren't they? And I wondered yeah. whether you had concerns about things like pavement etiquette. I mean, people can get very angry uh, with people in wheelchairs, etc., because they think they're taking up a lot of space. Is, is that a concern yeah. you have? I'm actually really nervous about this because, you know, we spent so long telling people how it is to live with barriers and, you know, how it feels when things don't go right. And all of a sudden, it's almost like we've pressed the reset button, I think, where every, this this virus has caused a barrier for non-disabled people. Yeah. So that that's going to trump it. So now, you know, every time we say, oh, by the way, uh, can you stop parking in disabled spaces the answer will be well there's a there's a killer virus yeah. you know <laughs> it's always gonna be the answer and you, it's gonna be like can we not work together yeah. to make more spaces you know it, it's gonna be really difficult i think to try and you know win people over again yeah i might be being really negative well who I, knows? I, okay look, the positive is you tell you tell me you tell us you tell standard issue what it is that we have to do to make your life a bit easier when you do go outside remember that disabled people want to do exactly what non-disabled people want to do so remember when you're on a pavement and you can walk to step down a curb so that a wheelchair user can use the pavement because mm. we can't sort of grab hold onto the wall and lean back parking in disabled spaces obviously that's gonna still be a, a big thing especially i'm a new driver are you now um, yes well i still need to pass my test but <laughs> shielding remember we still need to go to the supermarket we still need to go to work and we still want to go to the pub 
So, you know, when we're in the pub, make sure we've got enough space yeah. and don't pat on the head and, you know, it's, <laughs> it's oh, going to be that all over again, but with a killer virus. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me what else you've been up to, what you've been writing about on your blog recently, Gem. Oh, uh, what else have I been up to? I have been, actually I've been creating a bit of a space with shielders to talk about how we're feeling, which has been really nice. Um, on Instagram, oh, so I noticed this gap of you know young disabled people not not really having a space. So that's been nice to chat to people and and sort of have a space where we can just say how we're feeling and and say what we've been worrying about that week. So that's been nice. That's a positive that we can put. It in. is a real positive. Where do people get in touch if they want to? So Gem underscore Turner is my Instagram. Lovely. And food and drink has been getting me through. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> That's been I a common answer. My whole day. <laughs> yeah, I think, right, what am I going to have for breakfast? Lunch. And I do think that's a really good, healthy way to, to sort of separate your day and make it, you know, enjoyable and think, oh, what am I going to treat myself? Yeah. So that's nice. But it's kind of amazing how you manage to fill the time with stuff yeah. I didn't think I had that much initiative or reserve or whatever to get up every day and go right what we're we gonna do today then I mean <laughs> yeah. like like you I have been working so that creates some sort of like framework to spread your day around but yeah how do you feel about the future I think it's gonna be really tough for people shielding I think we're gonna be divided even within the community as well and I think that's what I'm trying to remember is that we're not all going to agree and we've got to do what we feel. I'm trying to just mentally deal with the the near future just for my mental health. And right now, I'm slowly trying to tell myself it's going to be okay to go out a little bit. Even, you know, when someone mentions you fancy getting together, the anxiety comes in. And that's not like me. I'm definitely not that kind of person. So that's that's going to be really tough to just tell myself, stop worrying. Like, you're just going to go for a capture. Yeah. Don't you think it makes you overthink everything? Oh, absolutely. Like, you're checking yourself all the time. You think, am I being ridiculous or am I being rational? Well, I think as well, because because the situation of lockdown has been quite isolating, even if you've uh, you've been with other people, you've generally been with a yeah. limited amount of other people. In the real world, you just hear more views, you have more input. Like, I think I overthink stuff now, definitely, yeah, massively yeah. overthink yeah. stuff. Uh, Gem, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you as ever. Um, we've managed to be not interrupted by any pets, which I think has to be a record for any Zoom call I've, I've ever made. <laughs> Tell me where people can read your blog or, and your Twitter handle. So it's Gem with a G, Turner.com is my blog. Gem underscore Turner on twitter and the same for instagram perfect come and have a chat yeah they definitely should hello i am joined on the phone by terry white award-winning journalist editor-in-chief of empire and pilot tv magazines and author of coming undone a memoir terry hello hello thanks very much for joining us although you know i've just about stopped crying i read coming undone in one sitting and then couldn't really do much else for the rest of the day to be honest with you i'm so sorry it starts in new york you've got what ostensibly looks like a dream life but on the first page you're being discharged from a psychiatric unit 
And it's the story of someone who looks so, so put together, unravelling and then trying to find pieces to put back together again. Please, can you tell us a bit more? I actually started writing this several years ago and it didn't start as a book. It started as a challenge from a friend when I came out of the psychiatric ward. He said, why don't you start writing 50 word stories? Because I was in AA at the time. I wasn't drinking. I was trying not to go out and I had a lot of time on my hands and was kind of trying to deal with the aftermath of being in hospital. And he just said, just start writing 50 word stories. It's kind of something to give me to focus on I suppose and what came out of that was stories about being in hospital stories about my mental health over the years I'd had mental health issues since being a child and then kind of digging into my childhood and from that came the book Coming Undone which is essentially a story of ending up in hospital in New York after having spiraling mental health problems with drink and drugs and essentially the story of how I got there and what caused that. So the childhood trauma that kind of led to this final moment in New York where kind of everything unraveled quite spectacularly. Obviously, it spans your life and it takes in poverty, abuse and your sense of self just completely slipping away from you. Mm. That was really important to me because I think, you know, a lot is spoken about about the consequences of abuse and trauma and I think it was really important for me to understand how that shaped the woman I became and how it gave me this quite fragile sense of self that was always slipping out of my grasp and that in those years in New York completely deserted me at one point. I became quite, you know, disassociated from who I was and that was one of the hardest bits. You know, really I think at the heart of the book is a struggle to kind of have a sense of self, keep hold of it. How do you have a complete sense of self when you've undergone those kind of things? Mm -hmm. And how you try and build one through career, through all of these outward things that you think are going to give you that magically, but it actually doesn't. And what happens when you don't find it where you think you should? Yeah, exactly that. You are fiercely, magnificently successful. And you've always had that fire in you. When we first met, when we were baby journalists back in our very, very early 20s, fresh out of university in our first magazine jobs, one of the first things I remember you saying to me is, I'm going to be the editor of a magazine before I'm 30. I want to be the next Tina Brown. And, you know, you fucking did it. Well proud of you. But do you think that was a case of, I'm not going to be defined by struggle, I'm going to be defined by success? Yes, 100%. And I think that was, in many respects, what saved me for a few years, but also is, was as damaging as being defined by struggle in many mm -hmm. respects, because I became so determined to leave that person behind. I used to kind of refer to to younger me as almost like a different person yeah and I would be like oh I'm not that person anymore those things didn't affect me I'm live a completely different life I have a professional job you know I sensibly a very middle class life and I thought if I could become really successful become known for, you know being hardworking or being talented or, or you know have these things that would say to the world that I had some value, then I'd find, as I say, myself in that. I think I, I became very focused on achievements because I think when you go through those things, you feel like you're nothing. I remember uh, one of my 
mum's partner saying to me, you're nothing, you'll never be anything, you're worthless, those things stick with you. And what you then decide to do, I decided to do, was to prove over and over and over again that I was worth something. But the reality is that it's actually quite hollow because every time you get a new job, every time you win an award or you achieve something else, there's kind of this initial buzz and you're like, yes, I've done it. And then it kind of wears off because it it can't ever replace those holes in yourself. You can't stuff them with jobs and with salaries and with, you know, plaudits. That, That doesn't work. All it does is give you a temporary sense of value, but it doesn't really address the fundamental issues so in in many respects it becomes a hiding place more than anything we go back quite a long way and so we've chatted about aspects of your life and my Mm. life before there are about a million lines that nearly broke me reading your book but it's hard to live when you suspect your life ended at five Mm. yeah that really got to me my abuse started when I was six and I can absolutely trace back those feelings of not being lovable, not being worthy, mm. sometimes feeling like I'm not even really here to that mm. point. So it was heartbreaking reading it, but it kind of felt nice to feel recognised if that doesn't sound mental. <laughs> not at all. <laughs> it's quite often skipped over to like how a kid gets through this and becomes something else and becomes successful. But you seem to have found a way to have it alongside you. And obviously that has not been an easy journey at all. No, and it, it's been a long journey because, as I say, I was so intent on burying it and divorcing it entirely from me that all I all I served to do was to make it bigger, to make it bolder, but to, to hide it away in such dark places that, you know, it led me down a really dark path of, of trying to manage those feelings secretly. And that included, you know, prescription pills, that included self-harming, that included drinking, that included, you know, I didn't have much of a personal life for years because I wasn't able to have a functioning relationship, that's for sure. And I, you know, always said, oh, I don't agree with marriage. I've got no interest in having kids. And I think I I didn't feel safe within those things and didn't think I deserved those things. And I kind of rejected that life and just thought I'll be on my own and I'll have my career and that's enough for me. But I, you know, cut myself off emotionally from quite a few people. I, I became so self-reliant that I I proudly didn't need anyone, but more importantly, didn't want anyone. But I think that was all just part of a defence mechanism, which was, you know, all that's the path in which all darkness lies. And I don't feel robust or able to kind of deal with that stuff. So I'm just going to pretend it doesn't exist. But it's it's that's just an impossible path. And, mm-hmm. you know, but it's a path I was on for 30 odd years I'm 41 now and actually pulling it up alongside me as as you say that's only been something I've done in the last five years I felt so alone when I was growing up I felt completely isolated I was chronically shy I didn't have any friends I felt so apart from the world and I felt like I was the only person experiencing what I was experiencing And I wish that I'd have found something that I'd have told me that it was okay, that it wasn't my fault, that I was worth something. And, you know, I'm very conscious that there are young girls out there who are suffering some of the things we suffered and are probably feeling so alone and so, like, 
everything they're being told, the people who are telling them that they're worthless, the people who are telling them that they deserve it, the people who are telling them that they're nothing, they are internalizing those feelings and probably thinking that they aren't worth anything and that they're never going to be anything. You know, that's what I was told, you're never going to be anything. And I want those girls to know that they are something they are everything they can be anything they want to be that this will get better that things can be okay in the end and the people I had in my mind when I was writing the book was actually those girls and it obviously happens to boys as well but I have a a very singular perspective as, as a woman and what happened to me when I was a young girl and how you know that violence happened to me at the hands of men and those girls are are primarily who I wrote the book for. I think in a lot of books about trauma the sheer spill your guts messiness is absolutely skimmed over Mm. but coming undone is visceral and raw and it's it's brutal. Mm. How hard was it to write that and revisit those memories and and those experiences? I mean I have to say it was pretty it was pretty (laughs) awful and, and people go oh, was it super cathartic? I'm like, was it? Fuck. I mean, (laughs) my God. There is a truth in that I feel unburdened and I feel there is a liberation in there being no more secrets, no more hiding. But by the same token, it was so painful to write because you are sat down for several hours at a time and and your primary focus is to dig out these things that you've spent decades hiding from Uh so you've buried them and you've buried them and you've buried them over and over and over again try to push them to a place you can't access so going back with the kind of (laughs) express purpose of resurfacing all that stuff is a really hard exercise and it's an exercise you have to do completely alone nobody can help you with that nobody can you know work with you on that and so you go to a very insular place and you know I made sure that I was kind of only doing it for a certain number of hours that I wasn't locking myself away for days and days and days that I was then you know going to the pub or going to the pictures or I was kind of cushioning it with stuff um to alleviate the intensity after because it's an incredibly intense process when you're taking that stuff out and you're trying to trace this line between what you experienced and where you ended up you have to kind of walk that path again entirely, you know, from when it first happened. But I think that was the only way to write the book was to write it completely honestly and in as much detail as I could remember. So Coming Undone is out on July the 2nd and available in all good bookshops. Yes, and some bad ones. And some bad ones too. There's no no such thing as a bad bookshop, just Amazon. <laughs> no, quite. <laughs> Quite. Where can people find out more about you, please? Because obviously you have got your finger in loads of exciting pies. Yeah, I am on Twitter, as, as I said to you, trying my best, you know, not to be so much anymore. But yeah, I am on Twitter at uh, Terry underscore White and at Instagram on Terry L White. And it's mainly just stuff about the book, me shouting about uh, injustices in the world and pictures of my cute baby. It's a good mix. I'm a big yeah. fan. <laughs> Potent mix. Thank you so much for chatting to me. Thank you. Terry and I talked a lot more about kids growing up in poverty, how that's still a reality now, why trauma shouldn't always be described in euphemisms and metaphors, how her view of success has changed and why the fuck she decided to record her own audiobook. 
You can hear the full interview as one of this week's chops, alongside time-travelling Jen's chat with Ashley Dottie Charles about her new book, Outraged. And who can't relate to that title right now, eh? If you haven't already, why not hit subscribe? So they'll be waiting for you on Sunday morning. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. I'm joined via Zoom by athlete, former European champion, world medalist and five times Olympian, Joe Pavey. We've just had a long chat about how Joe didn't think it was necessary for me to do a roll call of her achievements and I've done it anyway, so uh, sorry about <laughs> that, Joe. Thanks for joining me. How has lockdown been treating you? Thanks so much for having me on. It's really lovely to be chatting to you. Yeah, lockdown's the same for me as a lot of people. Just find yourself trying to juggle bits and pieces, but also the delights of homeschooling is obviously something that a lot of people are coping with and juggling all that. I've been involved with lots of initiatives, campaigns, um, trying to sort of promote the positivity of being active for physical, mental health, things like that. And enjoyed some quality time with the kids but of course we're all just so grateful to all the NHS staff and all the key workers who are working so hard during this time. Yeah absolutely so I mean as you say you've been doing quite a lot of work over lockdown sort of promoting the activity of children about how to sort of keep your kids active during lockdown. We could come out of lockdown in two weeks time but let's assume probably you know soft plays and things like that are going to be shut for quite a while. Do you have any tips for what we can do to sort of keep our kids active? Yeah like you say it's been very different obviously all the clubs haven't been taking place that um, kids are normally going to they're not doing the activity at schools and um, you know up till now we haven't been able to drive anywhere from home. I know We've literally just been allowed to drive to certain places. But during most of this lockdown, of course, we've just been literally at home. And we're fortunate we've got a little bit of a garden. I know that, you know, some children are not in that position. So we do feel really lucky. And we've been out in the garden just, you know, for a start, just playing games, tag. I feel like I've had to take the place of playmates. I spent about an hour and a half the other night playing tag with my little boy. It was exhausting doing those sudden accelerations, the adrenaline pumping, trying to get away from him. And also using the trampoline in the backyard, trying to do funny trampoline routines. But but yeah, I think all in all, it's a, a bit of a balance in that we've managed to go out and do some jogging, walking from home. The kids have been on their bikes while we've been um, running but also just getting out enjoying walking from the house getting out as a family trying to get that quality time but in the home you know we tried little fitness challenges one day we made a sort of fitness ladder out of an old bamboo cane where you do little running drills over it and back to the start we've done some activity challenges where you have to see how many exercises you can do in a minute different exercises but also keeping it fun involving the children in making those decisions because it's not just about physical health it's about their mental health Mm. if they're active they're going to feel so much happier because you know that's definitely an important thing and just giving them the chance to come out with ideas and it can be simple like playing tag playing bat and ball things like that but um keeping it fun for the whole family and also bearing in mind that trying to make it good fun quality time and, and that's the thing it's got to be enjoyable to keep them interested there's quite a lot of evidence to suggest that children's attitudes towards exercise will obviously be quite influenced by their parents for example obviously you're pretty active joe <laughs> you're an olympic athlete so do you find it easier to sort of motivate your kids to be active both of us as 
parents. We do enjoy keeping fit and active. My husband even ran a marathon on the day of the London Marathon early in the morning on his own just to get that done. We've got some great photos of the lovely coast path he'd ran such a long way. But, you know, I think as parents, if we can be good role models to our children by showing them that it's enjoyable to be active and, you know, it's also fun to sometimes set yourself some fitness goals. But if you don't achieve them, it's all about enjoying the journey along the way and enjoying um, trying to achieve those goals. And, of course, in normal circumstances, the fact that you get to meet people socially um, when you're exercising, cheering each other on, that real team spirit. Yeah, definitely. It's nice to, you know, keep active as a family. And we've enjoyed over many years getting out to the canal path, the coast, the forest. And um, that has definitely kept me motivated to keep running, to be honest. The fact that I've enjoyed that family time, that's definitely a big factor for me. So obviously this year would have been the Olympic Games in Tokyo and you are targeting a record for for a track athlete I believe a record six Olympic Games you would have been 46 at the Tokyo Games this year but obviously that's they've been postponed and so now you're you're going to be 47 how confident do you feel about about making that happen still I'm going to give it a go of course with a year's delay I'll be even older that's definitely a factor and um, I do get a lot of banter about my age but I don't mind all that when I've been on teams in recent years my teammates have called me granny and I enjoy all that banter and fun and they keep me going with their young enthusiasm and yes I want to give it a go but I definitely want to make it clear that I know it's a really big ask it's not an easy task at all and there are a lot of girls younger athletes running very very fast times and running extremely well which is good to see because we want the sport to be healthy in our country and it's great to see those girls coming through and you know obviously I've got to compete in the trials the trials for the 10,000 were going to be in June or the London Marathon was going to be the marathon trial and I hadn't made a final decision which one to target and then of course it became apparent that none of these events were going to go ahead but You know, I'm still keen. I just love not setting limits, really. I think, you know, I know it's a big ask, but I'm going to enjoy having a go. It would be nice, but I know I'm fortunate to have gone to five and had all those wonderful experiences, so I can't complain. At the age of 40 years and 325 days, in 2014, you became the oldest female European champion. And that was 11 months after the birth of your second child. And and possibly because some of your greatest achievements have come that little bit later in your career. But I remember it, it attracted a lot of media attention at the time. Were you surprised how much media coverage that, that did sort of draw? Yeah, I was extremely flattered and very, very grateful for all the support I got. Of course, um, I got known for being old, I think, which I didn't mind, because it was nice to show that, yeah, maybe if you keep trying, you know, and when you're happy and you're not stressed about things, you know, I'd become a mum, I'd really happy with that. I didn't really feel the pressure of achieving things. I was trying the hardest I can that year to get the times down on the track and everything, but I had no expectations. And, and I think sometimes you keep going, you can finally achieve your goals in the end but I definitely got a new surname I was no longer Joe Pavey I was Joe Pavey 40 that year and <laughs> even um, when Steve Cram was kindly commentating on my race as, as I went into the final bend of the race he shouted Joe Pavey 40 and, you know and um, get my age shouted even during the race which I didn't mind yeah it was very surprising I was extremely flattered but it definitely taught me a lot about not giving up on those goals you know I 
been on training camps when I was younger, thought I was doing everything perfectly right, but it was at that time where I was juggling everything. I'd found a lot of happiness becoming a mum and uh, also just thinking, well, you know, I do what I can do and see what happens and also learning to prioritise the important aspects of training, which I think goes into anything you're trying to achieve, really prioritising and juggling things um, sometimes can get you there in the end. Obviously, I have now just extensively done this, spoken about your age, spoken about the fact that you are a a mother and that some of your achievements have come after having children. There's a lot of chat about Serena Williams as well now, who obviously took a bit of time out to have a child, came back within a year, is chasing a record 24th Grand Slam title. There's a lot of chat about it. It does get a lot of media attention. Do you find that frustrating at all? Do you ever sort of think, like, oh, for God's sake, it's not that big? deal the thing is with age you get experience as well yeah and that's one thing that's beneficial I think whatever walk of life you're doing things in and aiming for certain things is that you take all that experience with you and I definitely used that to my advantage even though I was getting older I could think right I know what training works for me and what doesn't I knew what things to prioritize and that definitely helped but yeah I think you get to the point where Age, it sounds a cliche, but age is almost just a number in your mind because you know you've got to get down the track, you've got to hit those times still, and you you know you've got to try and achieve that. And I don't mind people talking about my age, I think, because I think it's nice that people might feel that they can still achieve things that they've wanted to achieve as they get older and as they've got a busier life, whether that's family life, work life, study life, you can still think right might be able to find a way around this and I've enjoyed um, being able to talk about those things and also as an athlete when I was younger I was just in that real elite sort of setting and other people who were runners even would think oh you know well it's all right for them they've got all this backup always help but actually it was when I found myself back in Devon just me and my husband working towards things having a happy life that was when I finally achieved my goals and it's fun to be able to talk about those things and talk about yeah as you get older you can still give it a go definitely because that's obviously really I guess like not a more relaxed mentality but but as you say you've sort of responded better to back in Devon not in this necessarily like really really super competitive elite environment it's interesting that a muggle like me would just assume any athlete would benefit from being in like one of those kind of super elite environments but it doesn't suit everyone and and as you say experience is really important and you must have learned a lot over the years about what suits you and what doesn't suit you and presumably that's contributed to your success as well. Obviously when I was younger I got the opportunity to go to training camps, I got the opportunity to access certain facilities and of course the young athletes are doing that now and good on them because I had that phase in my career where I had those opportunities and they should definitely grasp those opportunities while they've got them and um, I just got to the point in life where you know I was fortunate I'd experienced all those things but as soon as I was pregnant with our first child I thought right I drew a line under all that because you know my son's going to be 11 this year which means that I haven't been on in any training camps for over 11 years because wow. once I was pregnant with the first child I thought right that's it now I've done that I think things have moved on a bit since I was a young athlete we tended to it would be just my husband and I working away together but yet we were able to choose oh let's go to an altitude camp let's go to a hot weather camp but we didn't really have the huge backup that they have nowadays but of course you know younger athletes should take those opportunities so I'm definitely not um, criticizing that but I just found it interesting that actually being happy just getting back to 
yeah, work hard when you're at the track, work hard when you go out for a run, but don't stress about it the rest of the time. And also listen to your body, make decisions on a day-to-day basis, know what you've got to achieve, but be flexible and have a flexible schedule, a flexible plan and um, get there in the end. But, but yeah, it's been definitely an interesting journey that I've been fortunate to have. Yeah, probably people could take that advice into all sorts of other aspects of life not just elite sport about I guess sort of knowing yourself and knowing what you want to do and what suits you best and and the you know environment in which you thrive at whatever it is you do I guess definitely I think that's the sort of thing I like to compare it with really just like you said it's not just about sport it's about anything you might be wanting to achieve whether it's music drama things in business personal goals for yourself in fitness or whatever it's never too late to give it a go and you might be surprised what you can achieve and sometimes there's challenges but sometimes you can maybe find a way around those challenges and obstacles and things might go better than you dreamed they could have done really and I definitely experienced that I definitely thought the days of getting a medal were far behind me at the start of the year you know in 2014 when I got the European gold when I was over the age of 40 I was obviously breastfeeding my second child the trials were in May and I was still breastfeeding till the end of April so when I was down the track my times were obviously not very good but I didn't stress about that because I thought well I can only do what I can do and obviously my main priority right now is being a mum enjoying having a new baby enjoying time with my older child and eventually things started to come together but I didn't worry about it because I knew that it was different circumstances and at the time I tried hard but I didn't stress about things and I think when I was younger I probably dwelled on things more stressed about things. You sort of touched on this earlier but I wondered what keeps you focused and motivated now to keep training and and keep trying your best to to achieve those goals? The thing is I just love running and I think if you find something you love doing you want to keep doing that really. I love getting out in the lovely scenery, experiencing all that. I love getting out with my kids, them on the bikes. I love um, my son goes running with me and I just love how keeping active makes you feel. It's so good for your physical and mental health and I enjoy all that side of it as well. I enjoy being part of the running community I think anything we're all involved with we meet with others we're in contact online obviously at the moment things are a bit different but we've all been able to keep in contact in some way and um, all that running that community feel taking part in big events but also the other side of it setting myself goals I love having a goal to aim for but of course sometimes you don't achieve the goal but you try and enjoy the journey along the way and I just enjoy all that but um But yeah, I don't think I'll ever stop running. I think maybe I won't be racing in sort of real competitive races always, but I can always take part in events. There's always events Mm -hmm. um, all over the country every week. Well, normally, not at the moment with the lockdown, but um, normally there's so many events. But yeah, I think at the moment, I almost feel like I shouldn't be talking about competing when, you know, all the awful things that are happening and obviously people working so hard in the NHS. And I feel like exercise at the moment is definitely about how it can make you feel promoting activity has been a great thing for making you feel happier mentally and physically and um, it's nice to be able to spread that message but yeah still still loving it so I'll keep going for now. So Joe, you've got a website haven't you and there's lots of information on it about keeping active and stuff like that and what you're up to and you have a Twitter as well. Can you tell us where we can find you on Twitter to sort of follow what you're what you're up to? Yeah it's just at Joe Pavey. Um, I've been quite busy during lockdown getting involved with 
lots of things really. Also been involved in the indoor relay, which is a brilliant thing where runners have been signing up to keep a virtual relay going on a treadmill for 24 hours a day. And I've done a couple legs of that and I'm doing another one. Also been involved with the Sport England hashtag stay in workout, things like that, and in Fit for Sport initiatives. Lots of different initiatives have been lots of fun to keep in contact with people. But yeah, I'm always up to stuff and just really enjoy you know, keeping active and all those sort of things, really. But, you know, thanks for having me on. All the best to everyone as well. And, you know, take care, keep safe, and hopefully we can all get back at some point. Absolutely. Joe. thank you so much for talking to me. It's been really lovely. Uh, thanks so much. Welcome to Dunleavy Does Disaster. Dunleavy, what disaster made us want to give Sylvester Stallone a big hug this week? I'm surprised you've gone in with that. I thought you were going to go in for what disaster wrote off rats as shit with feet. Well, I'm going to go into why that's inaccurate and how the rats, in fact, save the day, as they do in so many disaster films, because rats are awesome. Okay, well, in the meanwhile then, we watched 1996's Daylight, which was a recommendation or a request from a listener. We always like to oblige. Thanks, Becky. I'd like to say thanks, Becky. This is certainly better than anything Lucy ever. (laughs) (laughs) True, true story there. It opens in New York. It takes place in the Holland Tunnel, and it actually made me want to make a request that I change one of my boxes to something, that I retire a square and put a new square in. And the square I'd like to put in is I've been there because, you know, when they had the Colgate sign, when they're on the New Jersey sign, and there was, the, I don't know if you remember this, the, and it had the Colgate sign. My cousin used to live in New Jersey and it was right, right near that Colgate sign. So I've been through the Holland Tunnel a lot because you can't go into Manhattan and get public transport back from New Jersey at like two o'clock in the morning when you're pissed out your head you have to get in the taxi so i've been through there a lot of times it opens up in new york with a tunnel and various characters all sort of getting ready for their drive through the tunnel we go through a little run through the tunnel which maybe it's because it was on my new big telly but it made me feel a bit sick that did it made me feel a bit it was it was yeah it was like those big those big dome-like cinemas where you feel like you're on a roller coaster slash in a New York tunnel. So in our cast of characters, we have George, who is a sort of a security guard. You know he's going to die because he makes a promise to tell somebody something later tonight and the feeling of <laughs> impending doom And arrives. he's so lovely. I love George. You get Amy Brenneman, who is from The Leftovers, if you have listened to me and watched The Leftovers who is a struggling screenwriter who's rocking a very When Harry Met Sally aesthetic. You've also, and this is a valuable point to this, you've also got some trucks full of toxic waste. Hmm. Yeah. That doesn't sound Mm. like good. You have Sylvester Stallone, who is a taxi driver, but was previously a bigwig at the Disasters Committee, but there's been a disaster and some people died and he lost his job, so he's now working as a taxi driver. You've got a couple who are trying to rebuild their marriage after he's had an affair and they have a 14-year-old daughter in the back of the car. You have a bus with some young offenders in their orange jumpsuits and you have an elderly couple with a dog and you have Viggo Mortensen, who is a flash bastard, who runs a sports shop. I mean, there are lots of other people, but they are people that basically survive the disaster. And the disaster happens when... 
some robbers. And I have to say now, the costume department should be sacked for what those robbers <laughs> look like. Yep. Who decide to try and steal some diamonds. One of them looks exactly the same as the guy that shot people in that cinema in America with the orange hair. Yeah. Exactly yeah, the same yeah, as I know him. Who you it's mean. quite unnerving. Anyway... They're having a police chase through the tunnel, or they're being chased. I think it's not by the police, it's by the, the fact that bagsman tags. So it's probably a private security thing. They crash into the toxic waste. Big explosion. Vast majority of people in the tunnel die, but we have a plucky band of survivors. And then in comes Sylvester Stallone, kind of uninvited, quite frankly. Everyone keeps saying, why are you still here? Weren't you sacked? And his name's Kit, so every time someone talks to him, it sounds like they're calling him Kit. Yeah. Like, he's just really unwanted toddler. Um, What I will say is that explosion was great, as in, it went on for ages, and it was actually quite well done for 1996. It looked quite effective. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure that's how a fire works. Yeah, I know. Okay, it still looked good. Before he goes into the tunnel, there is... See, this would also make a new box, I think, which is phenomenally quick diagnosis. He has a little run around outside the tunnel and he goes to people, let me see that arm. And then he looks and he goes, yeah, you're going to be fine. Move on. Like he's a doctor. He's a paramedic. So he is a bit like a doctor. Yeah, but but you actually have to physically look at the thing, don't you? Not if you're Sylvester Stallone, <laughs> Hannah, no. The real guy who now has the job also seems to have been involved in something. They said he'd been pancaked. I don't, does that mean he died? I don't know. There's a lot of this, there's so, a lot of this plot that yeah. I tried really hard to understand. And then I thought, fuck it, just write it out. Just don't understand what's going on. I think some of it doesn't actually make any sense. The explanations that were quite thin on the ground. So basically, he then has to go into the tunnel and he has this kind of crystal maze type thing that he has to do. He has to stand on fans and drop through fans and get in there. And then he does. And then the, the saving of the group of people commences. Not always successful. So I've got some things that I wanted to talk about around that. But first off, I kind of wanted to ask you whether you liked it. Yeah, I did like it. Well, I thought Sylvester Stallone's character surprised me because I always expect Sylvester Stallone's characters to be like big, beefy, you know, kind of can do anything. He was quite a sympathetic character, wasn't he? Like he was nice to everybody. Well, you get him... Even when people are in his face. This is my favourite sort of Stallone when he's the sort of vulnerable hero. So Rocky, mm. Copland, he's really good in. Cliffhanger, yeah. uh, which obviously has various cons against it, but I still love it. So when he is, he's got that vulnerability, I think he's he's much more fun to watch, actually. They found quite an ingenious, albeit transparent way of getting round exposition in this in that Sylvester Stallone decides to explain to the people what he's going to do next. And he says, it's good that everybody understands this, so I'm going to explain it to you as I go along really clearly. And I thought, that is the best excuse for mass exposition in a film that I have ever seen. Obviously, characters get picked off. Uh, Viggo Mortensen's character gets crushed to death, but it doesn't matter because he's going to go off and be Aragon pretty soon. So the characters, it says in the advert, uh, or in the preview on Netflix, it says that a diverse group of people get caught in there. And I am actually going to give it credit for the fact that it is actually a reasonably diverse group of people. There are women, there are non-white people, there are uh, older people. There's a dog, as ever, which Mickey will gain a point for later. The One of the women characters in it, the one who is the wife of the man who was Sarah. having the affair... 
Mickey always gets Sarah, their names. Sarah from and... The Sopranos. Sorry? She was in The Sopranos as an FBI agent. She is basically, I think, a premonition of Twitter. If you look at what she says, every <laughs> single thing she says in there seems to be a tweet. There's a bit where she sort of recognises Stallone and she says, oh, some people were killed and that's all I can remember. But yeah, he's a bad guy. Yeah. <laughs> Which is also stereotypically Twitter. Did you guys spot as well that actually Amy Brennan's character and so Stephen and Sarah, the couple with Ashley, their kid, who were trying to save their marriage, Amy Brennan is the other woman. Is she? Oh, no, I didn't. Yeah, at the end, she's going, Stephen, Stephen, you can't leave me, Stephen, you can't leave me. And it's his voice on her answer machine at the beginning. No. Well, see, that's what I mean about this film. Like being kind of doesn't quite explain itself properly. You shouldn't have to Google the plot, but you spotted it. So well done. She's called Madeline. They can't quite make up whether they want her to be brave or to be a screamer. So she does a kind of bit of both. There are bits where she's quite brave, like where she grabs onto that well, very brave, where she grabs onto that electric cable with her shoes. But there are other bits where she's like, ah, and just screaming wildly. But I did enjoy her losing... I think that's her... realistic. I did enjoy her losing her shit at the end because that is literally what I would be like. When when he said, just leave us, she was like, don't fucking leave us. <laughs> that is, it would have exactly have been me. I also want to talk about George's death. So they all decide en masse to try and save him and get him out. And then when they get him out, they realise they can't take him and they leave him to die. And I'm just saying, in case this ever happens to us, I would rather die surrounded by people attempting to save me than die on my own, left to slowly drown. If it was me, I'd rather have drowned quickly than on my own, slowly. Strapped Strapped to a board. board, Personally. Yeah. Yeah. Lucy, apart from... sorry. You said about Stallone, but I didn't get to hear why else you liked the film. Well, I, do you know, I really liked the fan bit. It reminded me of, well, first of all, loads of brilliant Stallone grunting. I love a Stallone grunt. But when he got through the all of the fans, and that was quite scary, he kind of ran around the bottom <laughs> until, you know, like the charity bins that you put a yeah. penny in and you see it circle. It was like a human one of those. It I was. thought that was great. Um, and I think I just, it was some of the dialogue was was shit, but I loved it. So I can't remember which woman it was, but they were talking about getting hypothermia, and one of the the women said, "I know what you mean. It feels like you're getting tired, but you're really getting dead." And everyone just nods. <laughs> and I thought, "Yeah, brilliant." <laughs> I missed that. Whoever wrote that, a lovely bit of dialogue um, in which Sylvester Stallone's son, who is in this, Sage. When they get to the top of the stairs, the stairs that eventually collapse so Stallone can't go up them. When they get to the top of the stairs, they go, what's up there? And he says, it looks like some sort of unfinished sewer system, which seems like exactly the sort of thing that a young man like him would know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he's seen seen the blueprint. He knows what he's doing. Also in our plucky band of survivors, there's a couple, the elderly couple, that are literally straight out of the Poseidon adventure. Straight out of the Poseidon yeah. adventure. Yeah. She sw- she swims in the cold and then she dies. Yeah. And I'm like, apart from the fact she doesn't, she's not a sacrifice because she doesn't go, I used to be in the swim team, yeah. I can do this. It is exactly the same. And then he doesn't want to leave her and then they convince him to leave her. Um, yeah, I was like, but I liked that. I liked that it is absolutely old school disaster film. It's got aspects of 
the Tower and Inferno and the Poseidon Adventure. And they've just gone, oh, that's good. We're going to have that. We're going to have that. And we're going to make this jigsaw, you know. It's going to start on fire, then we're going to have it flooding. It was great. They're actually quite unified as well. I like my survivors mm. to be unified because the mid-disaster punch-ups quite often get on my nerves. I mean, there, there are moments at the start when they, are, they aren't they are unified. The, the guy that's been having the affair is a bit of a dick at the start. Uh, and he pulls mm. the I'm a parent card and therefore my decision is worth more than anybody else's, which I was a bit annoyed by. And also for your bingo sheet, he pulls the I'm a parent card in a, an act of screaming cowardice yeah. as well as to why he can't go and help. Yeah. Um, I think, and I don't quite understand this, I think Amy Brennan and Stallone could have not done what they did, which was then go back. They were in a room that was slowly filling of water and they needed to reach the top of the room and get on the stairs, right? Yeah. If they had done nothing, they would eventually have got to the stairs, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, I kept thinking, why don't they just wait until the water gets high enough? And then I thought, maybe I'm really stupid, but you're looking at me like I'm not really stupid. No, I agree with you. But where's the fun in that when you can come out on some sort of geezer? Yeah, quite literally. (laughs) On two sorts of geezer. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I was a big fan, though. I really enjoyed it. And it it fair nips along. It's great. Should we go to the sheets? I think I've got six. I think I have seven, but maybe one's a bit dodgy and also we, we don't want me to film, <laughs> do we so i'll say i've got um, two i have got seven possibly possibly oh okay uh eight well, if you I'm, allow I'm me i'm clearly the loser I, okay i'm just gonna say now i'm gonna retire my box shane star and i'm gonna replace it with i I've, I've been there but i'm not gonna count that for this week okay i think that's fair I think it's fair. Yeah. Well done, Dunleavy. Okay. Shall I get my, my loserville out of the yeah. way first then? Go for it. Pet Survives Carnage. The very beautiful Cooper. What a gorgeous dogger. Yeah. Damn bosses, because they won't let, like, even though he's been fired, they won't let Latura, who clearly knows what he's doing, come back in and save the day. And then they do. It's good. Mid-disaster punch-up. There is a punch-up where one of the, the juvie kids is on team Vigo Mortensen and he's trying to stop Stallone and he keeps going, I'm in charge and they have a bit of a scuffle. And then we've got, hang on, haven't we already seen this guy in a disaster film? One of the juvies in this film is also one of the prisoners in Con Air. Yes. Uh, so yeah, there's a tick for that. Captain willing to go down with ship, plane building. I mean, Stallone's just putting himself out there, bless him. He's all, he's all up in it. And this is what happens when we don't all stay together. Goodbye, Vigo Mortensen, you absolute prick. Yeah. Six. Yep. Okay, I have thing you can't do, meaning you would definitely die in this film. I'm going for running in water. When that thing is rolling towards them, the big tanker yeah. is rolling towards them and they have to run it. Running in water is really hard. Aqua aerobics yeah. is really good for in, you. In fact, I thought my best hope would be to try and get on top of it and then do that thing with your legs where you stay on top <laughs> of it while it's rolling. But I don't think I could do that either. So that's one. So many traffic jams, which is kind of the whole plot of this. My eyes, the CGI is during some of those explosions. It was a bit iffy, but I cannot have it. Um, because I can't specific, I didn't specifically write anything down. So that'll be up to you. Cassandra ignored. I mean, I'm going to go for the Cassandra that was the female emergency service worker. I can't. Uh, I think she was a paramedic, and she was the one covered in soot. She was the one that had the the, the five o'clock shadow of soot 
the whole yeah. way through it. And she specifically says, we can't do this, we can't do this. They do it anyway. And that's how George ends up dying. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm going to go for her. I, I, I'm not going to have uncanny prediction of real life to of real life event but I have to say there's something really uncanny at the end where they go into the New York skyline and right in the middle of it yeah. there is the Twin Towers, Twin Towers. it's it's yeah. so so horrible to think well five years later they weren't there anymore it was all going so well until I sprained my ankle slash got thrown across the wall smashed into the thing that guy that's holding <laughs> the rock and then ends up being perforated with a thing Screaming cowardice, which we've already discussed, and this is the first time I've used this in ages. What the fuck is that font? The font that was like blue, and it came up and it was like filled in blue and white, like there was water in it. Yeah, me too. Oh, I've missed out on that. It, I might have to have a little revisit. It sounds amazing. So six, if you let me have the CGI. Seven, if you don't, uh, and I think we'll have well, Lucy. Seven, got? I think. Seven, I Lucy think. Lucy thinks she so, might have seven. Well, you know how you were saying you were, there's a box that you wanted to almost change. I have a box on here that is piss poor English accent, but I'd like I I, I kind of want to change it because did anybody notice the surprising Northern accent at the beginning? So Vigo Mortis's character, the guy that comes and puts his coat on, says, "If we take the tunnel, we'll just make it." And I was like, "It's a Yorkshire accent!" And then he <laughs> is the first person that we've seen talk to die. And I thought, of course, kill the Northerner off. But that's not that's not one of my uh, seven. So tunnel only an idiot would try to go through. So tunnel film, come on. Uh, <laughs> I mean, Brexit yeah. analogy, which is I was thinking you kind of trapped in a tunnel full of shit and fire and no way to get out of. It's kind of like Brexit. We have well, maybe provably bad science, as in they say that they're going to start drilling, even though they've been told by Stallone and by other people that that's going to be the worst thing to do. Ah, uh, that's not what provably bad science oh. means on that sheet. Provably bad science means that they say, there is a weird knock fart Oh, so when Earth. they make things up. People go, okay. what is that? Okay. The only thing that could have made daylight better is if they'd started drilling and suddenly <laughs> Tommy Lee Jones had just come running in. <laughs> um... <laughs> Why does that make me laugh so much? It was We've so got, funny. Can you smell burning? That one fits. Well, yeah. yeah. Amazing me. sense of grip with Stallone, where he's putting that thing on and there's the water. Camera zoom of person in a car or getting out of a car and mouthing what the f- one of the prison prisoners that happens when they see the fireball coming towards them. I think that's it. Oh, this disaster saved our relationship between the husband and the wife, but probably didn't so yeah i think they should get divorced. i think Hannah, they don't got like each week. other which is a relief yeah. for our eyes i won i won the quiz <laughs> i won the quiz on saturday night and i know you said you'd never win the quiz i know That's amazing. i did it was very exciting um actually it was last week i didn't win this week i just forgot to mention it um but i'm mentioning it now and yeah so i thought we might i was having a look just in case i won and i found a film called deep water horizon which is a, actually based on a true story and we haven't watched one of those for absolutely Ooh, ages that is meant in to fact, be good, I'm not sure good. has that got sharks in it uh, I, I mean i hope it does yeah i love a shark i hope so thanks again becky yeah, that Smith. Was much we'll better than any time. of mine well done <laughs> Standard issue for all women.